You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. So turn with me or you can follow along on the screens to Paul's letter to the Colossians. We're in the very first chapter in the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. You can now have a seat, and the kids can be dismissed to their class. Love you. Who keeps giving her a microphone? What's up with that? Uh, Good morning. My name is Scott. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here of the village. It's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, If you would, uh, join me in prayer as we begin our journey through the book of Colossians. Uh, God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men and women and kids that you've gathered here in this basement, uh, in this city, um, to learn more about you. And we know, we, we meet here with expectation, God, that you will reveal yourself to us, uh, maybe in some sweet new ways, maybe in reminders of things that we've known for a long time uh, that we just need to be reminded of uh, for the good of our soul. Um, thank you for your word. Thanks for letters and for songs and for just all the scripture that we get to see and hear from you. We get to know what you're like. We get to know how you've uh, related and interacted with your people, what you want your people to know. And I pray this morning as we begin our journey in Colossians that you would shape the village church uh, just as you are striving to shape the church in Colossae uh, when Paul penned these words. Help us to know what it is for you to have started uh, this work here that is called The Village and started the work in each and every single one of us that are in Christ. Help us to stay this morning and help us to rejoice and give thanks for all that you've done and look forward in anticipation with what you will do, uh, not just through this church, but through us and ultimately through the work of Jesus that never ends. Thank you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down today, nothing gold can stay. That's a poem by Robert Frost, Uh, nothing gold can stay. Some of you 
might have thought that came from The Outsiders. Uh, I might be dating myself here in some way. The Outsiders was a book that I feel like I read a million times when I was in school. It was also uh, a movie. I remember watching it on those old VCR TV combo carts they would wheel into the classroom. Uh, we watched that a lot. It was, it was Tom Cruise and Patrick Swayze and Rob Lowe and Ralph Macchio, Emilio Estevez from 1983. Uh, it's a bit of a throwback, and it's set in, uh, in 1965, and so there's lots of uh, denim and sleeveless shirts and slick back hair and uh, lots of, I think, 57 Chevys uh, as well in there. Uh, and there's a scene, uh, Johnny and Pony Boy. Pony Boy, that's the, the main character. He's the protagonist. Uh, they quote this poem as they watch the sunrise near an old church building. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Dawn goes down today, nothing gold can stay. Some folks think that the poem is just about nature, you know, colors of sunrises last, you know, only an hour or so. Flowers bud and they fall off and just leave leaves behind. One critic said it's something else, that it's a tragic reflection on how beauty comes and goes just like life itself. Uh, and even later in The Outsiders, Johnny is thinking about the poem and he says, the guy that wrote it, like he meant that you're gold when you're a kid, like you're green, when you're a kid, everything's new. It's dawn. It's just when you get used to everything that it's day. Like the way that you dig sunsets, pony. That's gold. Keep that way. It's a good way to be. However you slice it, Robert Frost was hitting on the idea that as good as some things might begin, they can't stay that way. As another famous writer put it, all good things must come to an end. And that feels true sometimes, right? Like we attend weddings and we go to baby showers and we also go to court dates, right? And we go to funerals. We start watching a new show that like starts really strong but then just loses steam about halfway through. We, we watch the greatest series in television history, right? And then the, the credits roll on the series finale and like, now what? You know, what? What's supposed to be as good as that was? Or we finish a really good book or, or the best taco, right, that you've ever had in your entire life. There's a reason we say that people are in the honeymoon stage of, of relationships or in a church or in a job, even with the Lord, because everything looks gold and no other colors have had time to creep in. But a honeymoon is by definition just a, a tiny blip at the beginning of something much, much bigger. We're beginning a, a new series today, um, and, and the letter that we're reading was written by a guy named Paul to a church that was also just beginning. Maybe it was still in its honeymoon phase, and Paul's heard a lot of good things about this church. They are gold, and he's also heard that this church is planted in a city where there's pressure on all sides to give up on what has made them that way, the gospel. And to give in to old religion or new spirituality or some subtle combination of the two. And even though things are good now, Paul knows that it may not actually stay that way. Because Paul knows people. Paul knows how we confuse good things with new things. We confuse hard things with bad things. We confuse the unexpected or, or unmet expectations with not having something that we were supposed to have. And so we leave behind what we do have and we go somewhere else to something else or someone else to find it. And there's so much stuff in the world around us that would love when other colors creep in to our life for us to begin looking for gold in places other than the gospel. 
as if we've squeezed everything we could out of Jesus. And so Paul writes a letter. And he writes it not out of fear that nothing gold can stay, but out of a gratitude, uh, a hope, an excitement, an eagerness for this young church in the city of Colossae to live as if the beginning really is just that. It is the beginning of a life in Christ that gets to grow old and yet somehow never stops being gold. And so our main idea this week as we set out in Colossians is this, that every good beginning has no end in Christ. So let's read the first couple of verses here. Colossians 1, 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. All right, so where, where are we? Uh, we always begin a, a series by giving some context for what's going on because there's, there's a lot that we can miss. There's a lot that we can misunderstand or misapply if we don't know where we are, like who these people are or what's happening in this world surrounding the words that we're gonna be reading together over the next several weeks. Uh, and so some context. As, as the first couple of verses say, this letter is from Paul and Timothy. Paul is an apostle, which means that uh, he was one of the guys that Jesus put in charge of laying the groundwork for God's people, what to believe, how to live, uh, what Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension and all that stuff meant, what they were supposed to do while they waited for him to, to come back and finish what he started. Paul had the authority to, uh, and the responsibility to, to teach and influence and call shots and draw lines in the sand, all sorts of things. And Paul, in particular, he traveled a ton. He preached the gospel and he planted churches all over the place. And he also got himself into a lot of trouble along the way. He got kicked out of cities. Uh, people tried to kill him with rocks. They spread lies about him. He's actually writing this letter while he's under arrest. And he got in trouble so much that we're not exactly sure which imprisonment this actually is when he's writing. If it's Rome or Ephesus or, or somewhere else. Uh, but even though he traveled a lot, and he planted lots of churches. He didn't plant all of the churches. And, and he wasn't the one who planted the church in Colossae. That was uh, a guy named Epaphras. He was the guy that planted this church. He knew a couple of people in the city of Colossae. But Epaphras was a local Colossian. He was a, a Gentile. He didn't have any Jewish background. And he apparently came to visit Paul uh, in prison to talk about what was going on in the church and in the city, probably to get some, some advice or some pastoral coaching from Paul while he was just hanging out in prison. He probably didn't have a lot going on, right? What else was he going to do during that time? And so Paul didn't send him back empty-handed. He sent him back with a letter, not just for Epaphras, but for the whole church to hear. Now, there were a couple of people that were around as well. Timothy, uh, like we read, he was a, a younger guy who uh, Paul mentored. They have a, a father-son dynamic a bit. Timothy is like, uh, he's probably likely the one who is writing down what Paul is saying. And there's, uh, there's also Onesimus, who is, uh, he's not mentioned until later in this letter, but he's with Paul, uh, and he actually goes back to Colossae with Epaphras to deliver this letter. And you can read more about him and his situation in Paul's letter to uh, Philemon, or Philemon, however you want to say it, uh, which folks often, they kind of like package or bundle uh, Philemon and Colossians together uh, because there's some overlap in the people and the stories and the situations there. And Paul probably actually wrote both of those letters at the same time and sent them at the same time. So uh, those are, are people writing and delivering 
this letter? Uh, what about who's getting the letter? What, what do we need to know about them? The city of Colossae, it was uh, in a region called Asia Minor. It's in modern-day Turkey. And it had been a booming city up until recently when Paul was writing. A highway was built that uh, just totally bypassed Colossae. And it went straight to Laodicea, which was a, a nearby city. And they sucked up all the traffic that otherwise would have been going to Colossae. And they grew because of that redirected uh, traffic. Um, it's like you may not know this, but uh, I-75, when it was built... Back in the 50s, there was talk of it actually passing through Hamilton. Uh, but, but the folks in the city wanted to keep traffic more chill, and so they bypassed uh, that route. And it's hard to say what Hamilton would have looked like, right, if we had I-75 running right through it or right next to it. But chances are, like, we gave up on some economic boom of some sort uh, back in those days for a, a smaller town feel, right? So we gave up some stuff, but we also kind of gained maybe some things in there too. But but Colossae, uh, they didn't just like miss out on potential new opportunities. They actually missed out uh, on business that they already had because folks now had a faster, easier way to get somewhere else. And those two cities, Colossae and Laodicea, uh, they weren't far away from each other, about 20 minutes away, 20 minute drive today. Um, but it was just far enough, especially back then, that it caused a slump in the city, like an economic slump. For those of us who have watched uh, maybe industries leave Hamilton in years past, for me, the, the biggest one I remember is the, the paper industry leaving the city, getting uh, bought up and then moved out. You, you kind of know what that's like, not just what it does economically, but what it does to the morale of the city. I remember seeing bumper stickers that said, Hamilton, the city that offers you nothing. I saw that bumper sticker on cars all the time when I was a kid, uh, some folks wanted things to go back to the way that things used to be, right? What's familiar, re recreating the past. Others were looking for, for anything new and exciting uh, that might be shinier than whatever we had then. When we got Walmart, right, that was a big deal, right? That was a big deal. That was going to turn things uh, right around. And others were just apathetic to the whole thing. And in Colossae, there were lots of people who had lots of ideas for how they could get their city and their lives back on track, and a lot of it was spiritual. Who to worship, which gods to please, and how to please them to get their lives and their city back on track. There was a, a decent Jewish population who, uh, who followed the Old Testament law there. So those folks lived as if Jesus wasn't the Christ. He wasn't the Savior. They made sacrifices, right? Ceremonial washings, all that stuff to make themselves clean and acceptable to qualify themselves before the Lord. They were still a minority, though. Most of the people in Colossae were Gentiles. They were non-Jewish people, and they worshiped all kinds of gods. Greek gods, Artemis and, and Zeus and Athena, Egyptian gods like Isis. There was a local moon god, all sorts of beliefs and practices and ways to try to experience the divine and interact with spiritual stuff in hopes that they would find favor and prosperity for their city and for themselves and for their future. And in the midst of all that, you have the small, young church plant, not started by some apostle, but just a guy who heard the gospel, and they believe fervently and passionately that Jesus alone is God and King and Savior. And we don't know everything that that guy, Epaphras, what he talked about when he visited Paul in prison, but we know that he bragged on his people 
a lot. He is proud of them. We'll see that even in today's passage. And we gather that he filled Paul in on the pressures happening in that city that might make things other than Jesus seem new and shiny and full of promise, more golden. And not just setting aside Jesus, right? Not getting rid of Jesus, but, but maybe, you know, just like adding something else, bringing in something alongside of Jesus just to help him out a little bit. Who knows how many conversations they had, but at some point, Paul tells Timothy to open up the laptop and start writing. And out comes this letter to the Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. One of the things that he wants them to know from the very outset of this letter, and it'll be a theme of the whole thing, is that in Christ... There is no better place to be. And this is our first point this morning. What do you talk about when you meet someone for the first time? You introduce to somebody, right? What, what do you talk about? Hi, my name is whatever. And the other person says, hi, my name is whatever. And, and then, wh- like, what do you talk about with that person? You usually ask, what do you do? Where are you from? Do you go to work? Do you go to school? Are you taking care of kids and family and house stuff, like all the above? Like, what is it that you do? Where do you live? When I meet folks here on Sunday morning for the first time, I usually ask, how did you find us, right? Because no one is casually walking outside and just stumbles down here on a Sunday morning. They had to try to be here somehow, right? Uh, a, a pastor, Jeff Van- Vanderstelt, uh, observed that we just never ask people who they are. We never ask that question, right? Like, what if you met someone, hey, my name's Scott, hey, my name's Steve, and then you just said, who are you? Like, if someone that I didn't know asked me that question, I would have an existential crisis. Like, right there in that moment, I would shrivel up into an introverted ball and just die. Like, what do you mean, who am I? What kind of question is that? Now, some of that feels awkward, right? Because that's just not how we talk. It's not how we do introductions. But... There is something to be said for what is easiest for us to identify with and to identify others by, like, what they do, where they live, what they like, relationship status, education, right? That stuff tells you things. I'm not saying it doesn't tell you stuff. It can tell you a lot of things, but those things, like, is that who we are? Rick Meyer uh, loves to say that we are not human doings. We are human beings, but it's a lot easier to ask someone about like what they're doing than who they are being. And Paul tried to take Rick's advice here in the intro a little bit, which actually becomes all the more significant as we hear a little bit more about what happened in Colossae shortly after this letter was written. And we'll get there in a minute. So Paul mentions that he's an apostle. It's a, it's a bit of a title and it's a bit of a job. He says that uh, the letter's for folks from a certain city, but he ties his job to Jesus, not because it's what he's decided to do for Jesus. He's saying that this is what God put in his lap. This is God's will. Timothy, there's no resume, there's no title, no other details. He just introduces him as a brother. Not flesh and blood, but in Christ he is family. The people that he's writing to, they're in Colossae, right? It's, it's where they are geographically, but he drives home where they are spiritually, relationally, eternally. They are in Christ. These people, 
99% of whom like he has never met before. He doesn't know their names. He confidently says are saints. They are faithful brothers and sisters, family who share in the same grace and the same peace from the same God who is their same father. It's not that Paul's resume doesn't matter. He spends time talking about like all that he's done experienced in other letters. But, but you flip to any letter of Paul that he has ever written to any person or church in the New Testament, and you'll find the same thing, that who he is and who they are, whether they're tight friends or whether they are total strangers, is the same. They are together in Christ. So who are you? Who are we? In Christ, we are saints, brothers, and sisters brought together by the will of God to share in the same grace and the same peace from the same God who is our same Father. And that might seem unimportant, right? You can gloss over that really easily until you learn one more thing about the city of Colossae. Here's a picture of Colossae. Ryan, you want to throw it up there? Uh, there it is. No, yeah, I know. Calm down, Clay. Now, you might be thinking, like, well, that's just a, a terribly landscaped, very unimpressively high mound of dirt and dead stuff, right? But, like, that's, that's Colossae. Colossae was, was in a slump, just like Hamilton was back in the day, but, but they never got their spooky nook. They never got their True West or their Billy Yanks. Right? Never got any of those things at all. Their Markham Park, their River's Edge, anything that brought revitalization back to the city. In fact, Colossae was downgraded at some point from a city to a town, and they never got a chance to bounce back because a few years after this letter that we are reading was written, the city was destroyed by earthquakes. Not one, but a series of earthquakes destroyed the city, and it would never be rebuilt. It would lay in ruins. Even to this day, it's largely unexcavated. It's just a pile of rubble. And the people who survived, like including whoever was left from this church that Paul is writing to, moved about a mile away, and they had to start all over again. So shortly after Paul wrote this, some of his first words in this letter would be obsolete. They wouldn't be the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae anymore. But they would still be saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Losing temples and idols and shrines, all that stuff crushed under rubble, not being able to offer sacrifices or hold rituals or please the gods in some way, this may have kept every other worshiper of every other God from being faithful followers. But the church in Colossae didn't stop being the church, being a faithful church just because Colossae stopped being a city. Prison didn't keep Paul from being an apostle, a sent one. That's what the word apostle means. He is stuck in house arrest, but that didn't stop him from sending the good news about Jesus to other cities and other countries and eventually across oceans and time 2,000 years later to a young church in Hamilton, Ohio. And because of that, we know that no circumstance or catastrophe or anything can keep us from being counted among the saints to as long as we are in Christ. This context, pile of rubble, gives greater weight just to what Paul's first words are. What we do, how we got here, where we're from, where we are, all of that matters. Those things aren't unimportant, but they, they also can't be 
who we are at the core because that stuff, at some point with a, a new highway or with an earthquake or with a prison sentence can and just might someday become obsolete. Who are you? How do you answer that question? Are the things that come to mind things that will still be true about you no matter where you are, no matter what job you have or what you're able to do? In a very simple way, the Lord might want to reintroduce you to yourself and maybe to some other people, to the church, and remind you that what you do and who you are and where you are is first and foremost in Christ. That is where you are. You're in Christ, and there is no better place to be because in him your place and your purpose and your people will never be made obsolete ever, right? That's the greater context of this letter and of our life. While people, or while Paul is delivering a message to a particular people at a particular place at a particular time, he is trying to help them and us live in a better kingdom that never ends and crosses every border and talks in every tongue and lasts forever. And to do that, we start in Christ and we stay in Christ. And that's what we'll look at for the rest of our time Today, let's take a look at uh, the next few verses in Colossians 3 through 8. Paul continues, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it, and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Our second point this morning is this, that there is no better place to start than in Christ. Uh, speaking of introductions, like how does it make you feel when you meet someone for the first time and they say, oh, I've I'm so glad to meet you. I've heard so much about you. How does that make you feel? There are a few different responses I think that people can have. Are you one of those like, uh, oh man, that's awesome. Like I'm, I'm flattered. It's an honor to have been talked about. That's one option. Maybe that's some of you. Or are you one of the people who, whose brain starts immediately flipping through every connection that this person has to, to people that you know and all the possible dirt, right? That they have maybe have heard about you from those people. Or are you a super private person, right? And it doesn't matter how much or how little they've heard. Maybe they've heard nothing about you. They're just trying to be polite when they say that. But you're still like, they know too much. It's over already, right? What happens inside of you when someone says, I've heard so much about you? The Christians in Colossae were, were hearing from Paul for the very first time. And he essentially starts the letter off by saying, I've heard so much about you. Right, Epaphras told me everything he could remember about what God has been up to there. And there are probably some people as like Epaphras or Anisimus, whoever's reading this letter out loud to the church, you know there are a few people looking at each other like, like do, you, do you think that he told them about that one thing that we did that one time? Like you know there are people who are like creeping to the back of the crowd as he's starting to talk. But Paul just launches into how grateful he is to God for them. It's just so encouraging. I, I don't know if you've ever been just like faithfully, steadily faithful in something, 
right? There's like no audience, just doing a job, trying your best. Maybe it's not even perfect, but no one sees you. You're, you're not talking about it or bragging about it to anybody, but someone at work or someone at school or in the church, maybe at home, just out of the blue says like, hey, I know that you've been doing this thing. I just want you to know, like you're doing a, a really good job. Thank you so much for doing that. Dude, that stuff puts wind in people's sails. That's powerful stuff. Epaphras had been bragging on the church to Paul because there was so much to be thankful for, right? And Paul wanted to share that with the church. And what's funny is that some of us, like if, if we were in the crowd, some of us would actually maybe feel more comfortable being called out publicly on stupid stuff that we've done than being complimented publicly, right? Like how are you supposed to take a compliment? Some of us have no idea how to do that, like myself included. Even if you know if you've done good stuff, like how are you supposed to respond to a compliment like without sounding either super ungrateful, like you're calling them a liar, like not, nah, it wasn't that good or whatever, or uh, super arrogant, of course I did a good job. Yes, you should be thanking me right now, right? It is, it's so hard sometimes to receive a compliment or even receive uh, public criticism. Depends on who you are. But either way, it is so easy to find the flaws, to find the things that could be better, to the things that like aren't quite there yet in other people and in ourselves. And on the flip side, it's so easy to flatter, to just say things to butter people up and to make people feel good. It's sentimentality that literally just gives people a hit of dopamine. That's what goes on in your brain uh, that makes people feel good. Flaw finding and false flattery are things that we do that interrupt what Paul is trying to put into focus here. The good fruit of God's work that's been growing since day one. Paul's demonstrating something different here than, than what you get with like old religion or, or new spirituality. It's a kind of gratitude that only the gospel can create. The church in Colossae, it was not a perfect church. It was young. There was a lot of maturing to do, lots of room to grow, and some of the cultural pressures were already starting to creep in the, into the church. We'll see that in uh, a few weeks. Real sin, real idolatry, uh, and Paul doesn't avoid hitting on some of the flaws there, right? But Paul doesn't lead with that. He doesn't lead with that, and he's not loudest about that. That's not what he is most excited about and eager to tell them. This isn't the first time that Paul has expressed his thanks. Paul has been thanking God for them in his prayers every day, ever since Epaphras started talking about him. This might be the first time that they have heard it from him, but it's not the first time that the Lord has heard how thankful Paul is for this church that is still just figuring stuff out. And he's not just trying to flatter them just to get them to stick with Jesus, right? This is not a feel-good Hallmark card that he's sending, and it's not a sales pitch. This is genuine thanksgiving for the way that they have been living life with Jesus, and that's only possible because Paul knows that this life with Jesus is from Jesus, and it's about Jesus, and it's with Jesus, and it's through Jesus. You and I, like, We've done whatever, good and bad and ugly, but any good that's ever begun in the midst of God's people is the work of Jesus. Any of the bad stuff uh, has been forgiven and washed and just paid for by the work of Jesus, and any of the ugly, weird, uncomfortable stuff will be wiped away and replaced with something better when Jesus returns to finish the work that he started. This is what it means to be in Christ. And being in Christ begins with Christ, and we get to thank him for that, even when, especially when, 
what we're thanking him for is his work in and through us. Do you believe that someone could say that about you? Do you believe that someone could like thank God for who you are? Like that if the apostle Paul heard from me or from the person sitting next to you, like what you were up to, what we were up to in this city or in this church, do you think that he would lead the loudest with his thanks? And if that's hard to believe, you can't get yourself there, then I want to remind you of, of three things. Jesus first is the one who works. What does the text say? Their faith and love comes from hope that's, that's already ready and waiting for them in heaven. Where did that come from? Jesus put it there. And, and they didn't go out to find it. Like it came to find them. Jesus came to the world as that hope. Epaphras came to them with the good news of that hope. And that good news, the gospel has been bearing fruit, not just among them, but, but anywhere in the world that it goes. The gospel is working. The spirit is the one helping us love. Any change, any goodness, any fruit in or from us is the fruit of God's work. You are the fruit of God's work. This does not diminish what you do. It doesn't minimize you. It doesn't minimize your role in the church or in the kingdom. To say that you are the result of Jesus' labor means that you are a supernatural new creation that's been shaped and molded by forces that you couldn't dream of controlling. Work that you would never be able to do in yourself or in anyone else in this church. And the work is being done like you, like is all by grace, not earned by old religion or new spirituality, but earning, uh, earned by Jesus. And it's all going according to plan. No matter where you think you should be or where other people should be, Jesus is in the driver's seat and he gets to have the credit for that. Which leads to the second thing is that Jesus has done enough work. We don't have to pretend like it's humility that, that keeps us from believing that, that we or someone else in the church isn't worth thanking God for. It's not humility, right? It's not being realistic uh, or, or being objective or truthful or honest. It's pride. Because all of the fruit, if all of the fruit, however much or little there seems to be, is the work of, of Jesus, then us being unimpressed by however much or however little there is, is just us saying that Jesus hasn't done enough yet for anyone to be thankful for. It's the opposite of Paul's prayers of thanks. It is us being unimpressed by him and withholding praise that he deserves, right? Prayers become complaints. Whether or not we know it, we basically call God a slacker, right? G gonna need to see a little bit more from you, Lord, right? Before I get excited, about anything, right? This mess here, my sin, this suffering, this evil, immaturity, whatever it is, it's way more impressive than whatever it is that you've been doing, right? Way too much of that and not enough fruit. If you, if you want me to be louder about what's good, I'm gonna need you to give me more good stuff to be loud about. That's what that looks like. But Jesus has done enough for us to be thankful for. Certainly on the cross, the empty tomb, his ascension, the sending of the Holy Spirit, his promise to return, he has done enough in you and in his church. Even at just the moment that you first believed, he made us a new creation in Christ, forgiven and adopted into his family. 
all that Jesus earned promised to us as an inheritance. We get to walk around loved by the king of all creation and the creator of the cosmos. However, he's worked in your life in specific ways to free you from sin or replace lies with truth, comfort you in suffering, mature you as a man or a woman in Christ, all that stuff, that is enough to give thanks for. And he's just getting started, which is the third thing, that Jesus is just getting started. We often want to rush the Lord and we confuse where we're going to end up one day with like how uh, things should be right now, right? We think that we should be one way, that other people around us should be one way. We confuse that reality, future reality with what things should be like right here and right now. We confuse the beginning with the end and we get discouraged and we become discouraging because the fruit is not as big or as full or as finished as we think that it should be. We want to live in the finished product. Right? Free of sin and suffering and, and evil and immaturity. And that is a good desire. That is a godly desire. Right? And we also get to remember that Jesus right here and now is just getting started. Paul wasn't thankful for gospel fruit that had finished. He was thankful for gospel fruit that was getting started. It wasn't done. It was increasing Right? There was room to grow, but Paul's heart wasn't fixed on all the places the gospel hadn't gone yet. Right? All the things that it hadn't fixed, all the things that were still not right. His heart was fixed on what the gospel had done. And the fact that it wasn't done, not a big deal. He was excited about what God might do down the road. There is no better place to start than in Christ. There's already so much to be genuinely thankful for, and he is just getting started. And this actually leads to our third point this morning. So if you would, let's read the next chunk in our focal passage. This is Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so, Paul continues, from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." third point this morning is this, that there is no better place to stay than in Christ. I've been thinking about that poem, Johnny says, the guy that wrote it, like, he meant your gold when you're a kid, like, green. When you're a kid, everything is new. It's dawn. It's just when you get used to everything that it's day. Like, the way that you dig sunsets, pony, that's gold. Keep that way. It's a good way to be. Next month, I will have known my wife for 20 years. I think that's right, more than half of my life. Uh, it'll be our 20-year dating anniversary in a few months. Um, I've got my 20th high school reunion coming up uh, in September. I've been a Christian for almost 20 years. I've by no means seen it all, all right? I'm young in some of your eyes. But one thing like I'm more and more impressed by over time as I get older are people who stay. 
people whose values and convictions aren't swayed by whoever's paying attention to them or whatever opportunity happens to just fall in their lap at some point in time. Like I'm impressed by people who stick it out when jobs or friends or churches or marriages or even following Jesus when they get old or boring or hard, right? I'm impressed by, by folks who aren't impressed by every new and shiny possible experience and who know the beauty and the value of letting God go to work over a long time in the things that one month in or one year in or 20 years in, they're completely used to. And yet they can still be just as impressed by Jesus as ever, maybe even more than ever because of the new work that he keeps doing in those same old things. And that's something that you don't get if you leave, if you don't stay. Staying is gold. And in a nutshell, that is what Paul is trying to get across here, that if you are in Christ, stay in Christ. He is just getting started, so stay. Keep that way. It's a good way to be, right? And it's only gonna get better. Paul drives this home by sharing the other kinds of prayers that he has been praying for them. Not just saying thanks for what Jesus has already done, but he has been asking Jesus to do even more because Jesus ain't done yet, right? And the same is true for us. As much as we have already heard and understood like the grace of God in truth, there is more wisdom and there is more knowledge and there is more understanding to gain as much fruit as there has already been, there is more fruit to bear in every good work, more strength and more patience and more endurance and more joy, more things that we don't even know about that haven't even happened yet that we are going to get to be thankful for because the work Jesus started in us, he is going to keep doing in us and he's not stopping until he's finished. In other words, Jesus is going nowhere. Jesus is staying. And so we should stay too. Paul knows that new things lose their luster over time. Like David Kreklaw preached about when we, he closed out John for us a couple weeks ago. We are an easily distracted bunch, right? Even when Jesus is right in front of us. We're so distracted by other things that are around us. And, and Paul is showing us how stupid it would be Right? especially for those of us who have started with Jesus to take the bait of old religion or new spirituality and to leave because of how sweet it is to stay and stick to the gospel that has more and more and more to give. Even though it's old, it only gets more gold over time. And so there's a couple things that we get to see here. One, we get to stay to get more of Jesus. All right, not more of Jesus stuff. We get to stay to get more of Jesus. And I don't mean that Jesus is like holding anything back from us now. There's not some part of Jesus that we don't have. Like if you are in Christ, Paul says, you have the same share in Jesus' inheritance as every other Christian right now. What I mean is that you get to see Jesus' faithfulness to you and to everybody else in the midst of anything and everything that life might throw at you for all of your years if you stay. And that's not something that you can rush. That's not something that we get to demand. It's not something that we get to dictate. But it is something that Jesus promises because he's the one who stays with us and isn't done working. And it's not something that you'll get to experience 
if you go chasing gold somewhere other than the gospel. Staying with Jesus will not make your life easy, but it will make your life not yours. (laughs) You will learn what it is to put your life in his hands as if who you are and where you are really is in Christ first and foremost. And that becomes easier and sweeter and a thing that you are more ready to do as you let him prove himself to you time and time and time again over the years And that's easier said than done. But that's something that we get to enjoy more of him. And secondly, the last thing that we get to observe here is that we get to stay to become more like Jesus. Not to try to make Jesus more like you, but to be made more like Jesus. Paul says that if we stay with Jesus, we get to live in a way that is worthy of Jesus in a way that makes God happy. Like this, this isn't about earning his love or his forgiveness or earning a seat at the table. Like Paul says that God himself has already qualified a you for that. All of us, every single one of us in Christ, we are qualified for that. He has already put us in his kingdom, redeemed, forgiven. All that stuff is past tense. But now what we do, the Lord gets to enjoy more and more and more as time goes on. He gets to enjoy us, not just in spite of what idiots we can be and the dumb stuff that we do, but because of what he is making us into. God loves to watch us grow up in Christ. He loves to watch us grow up. We get to think more like he does. We get to get used to his strength and and use it for more of the things that he would. We get to be patient and endure a lot with joy, just like him. Things in our life, again, may not get better. He's going to ask us to change and to do some hard things. We're not going to escape the difficulties of this world, but what's going to get better is our ability to live on this side of earthquakes and new highways and prison sentences or old jobs and boring marriages and hard friendships, knowing who we are and where we are in Christ, confident and thankful for all that Jesus has started to do. And we know that we will finish precisely because we have stayed with the one who came to us first and who loved us first from the beginning through our own life and even into our own death and into life again because every good beginning has no end in Christ. You can spend your days chasing gold all over the place, but you cannot squeeze all the gold out of the gospel. So stay. So I'm to invite the band to come up as we move into a time of response this morning. Uh, there's a quote from a woman named Cheryl Strayed from her book, Wild. Uh, she's quoting something that her mom told her. That there's always a sunrise And there's always a sunset, and it's up to you to choose to be there for it. Put yourself in the way of beauty. More faithful, more beautiful, more gold, longer lasting than any sunset or sunrise is the invitation of Jesus to put yourself in the way of his grace. And that is the invitation of Jesus to all of us this morning, to let yourself reflect and repent and reconcile with people if you need to do that here to respond in some way, to rejoice with gladness and thanksgiving and all that God has already done and what he is doing in you and excitement for what he might do in you down 
the road. And some of us this morning, we might need, we might get to start a new life in Christ today. You can do that. Some of us might need to be just reminded of who we are in Christ. And some of us might just need the encouragement because things are hard to stay. So whatever the Lord might be stirring in you, you have a chance right here and now to listen and to respond, to interact with him and us. And so there's a few ways that you can do that. There are some questions up on the screen uh, that might help you. Uh, sorry for the formatting on that last question there. I'll take responsibility for that one. Um, but there are some questions up there that will uh, let you and help you think through some of those things. Uh, there'll be some folks uh, back there by that red tree. I'll be back by the wall. If you need someone to pray with, you're welcome to come back and chat with us. If you would like to, we'd love to pray with you and for you. You can pray at your seats. The band will sing. You can join them and singing. Uh, we will also have communion up here. Uh, this is for believers. If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have to be a part of this church. Uh, just if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to partake in the table. This is, this bread up here, it's a symbol of the body of Christ that was broken for you. And the juice up here, it's a symbol of the blood of Christ that was shed for you. It's a symbol of the work that he did and that he started, and it's his promise that he's gonna come back and finish it again. And so if you're a believer this morning, you're welcome to come up and partake in this. If you're not a believer, this isn't for you, but Jesus is for you, we are for you, we would love to talk with you. And man, if this is maybe your first time of believing in Jesus, we'd love to come up and take this for the first time with you. So just wanna invite you, stay in your seats, consider what the Spirit is stirring you to do, and respond in whatever way seems fitting.